Well, today is a very special day, a very special occasion. Today, we desire to ordain Jacob Buss as a way of placing our stamp of approval uh, upon his life and upon him and um, recognizing the call of God on his life and ministry as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a matter of a few weeks, Jacob, Moriah, and their son Ezra will be transitioning, moving uh, to Pueblo, Colorado, and um, where Jacob will be the family pastor at Calvary Church in Pueblo. In just a moment, I will present the ordination council's recommendation, and then Jacob is going to come and, and bring a brief message, and then I'll be back to offer a charge to the candidate. And following the charge to the candidate, we will continue with a season of prayer over Jacob and Moriah, his wife, laying hands on them and offering brief prayers uh, for them and for their ministry. Uh, We're going to conclude with a presentation, uh, also by worshiping together, and then an announcement video. You know, yesterday, an ordination council met here at the church, made up of ordained ministers and deacons, to examine Jacob. As to his salvation history, his call to ministry, his beliefs, and view of ministry, I had the profound and distinct privilege of moderating this ordination council. And at this time, I would like to recognize the ordination council members. And if you served on this council and are present this morning, I'm just going to ask if you would stand for just a moment. Thank you all. Appreciate it. This morning I bring you the recommendation of our ordination council. It is the recommendation of the ordination council that we affirm Jacob Buss today through the laying ons of hand and hands and ordain him to the gospel ministry. If you would support this recommendation by the ordination council, would you signify that by a hearty praise the Lord. Amen. So praise the Lord and let the church say amen. Amen. Jacob is going to come now and he's going to preach for us and then I'll be back after Jacob to give a charge to the candidate. Everyone, Um, I want to say you all sound good and look good, but not quite as good as me. Um, Now I will say, that's nothing to do with my own. I picked an outfit out this morning and Mariah very quickly said, Absolutely not. Kicked me out of the room and picked the outfit for me. So I only look good because of my wife. So husbands, that's my first word of advice is don't dress yourself. Let your wife do it. Um, but as Rich said, uh, my name is Jacob. I've been a member here for probably about three years. We came down from Dallas when I enlisted in the army. Um, we've been here uh, at first quite jaded and angry with the Lord, um, if you know anything about our story. Um, but over three years, the Lord uh, through Ridge, through the staff, through the Holy Spirit has sho- softened and shaped me and Mariah's heart to know that our calling to Pueblo is the right choice and the right decision. Um, But before I begin, um, it would be ill-suited of me not to thank a large amount of people that are here. Um, So bear with me as I do it. Um, But I want to say before I do that, that the amount of people that are here give testament to the works that you put in the people around you. That sitting in these pews over here are people that have been pouring into my life since birth, since middle school, since high school, college, my time away in Lithuania, that I would not be the man I was today without people pouring into me. So the people that you interact with 
even though you may not see the fruit come about, that the impact that they have have lasting implications into the future. So I'd like to start with none other than my parents, Gary and Cheryl, who um, without them, I would not have been able to go to college. And they um, remind me so much so that the GI Bill didn't pay as much money as we had all hoped. Um, my mother-in-law, Charity, my brother-in-law, James, I thank you for welcoming me to the family. And James, thank you for being the little brother I always wanted to bully because now I have someone to pick on. To Pastor Ridge and his wife, Tracy, um, we would not be where we are today without y'all. Ridge, you poured into me in more ways than I ever thought I needed in a season of hurt and doubt. And Tracy, you pushed Mariah to finally do what she was called to do and be in women's ministry. And we're thankful for that. To AJ and Skylar Martin, I could, hi, Skylar. Without you and AJ pouring into us when we first got here, we would not be here. We had a conversation with them when we first met, and me and Mariah openly said, we don't understand prayer. I don't get the point of it. What's the point? And uh, thankfully, Skylar and AJ were soft in their reproach, and we would not be here without them. To Chris and Taylor Allen, the same thing. You have been the best friends to us. You were phenomenal for me and Mariah when I was gone, and um, I just can't thank y'all enough. To Matt and Sarah Clarkson, um, our friendship began probably a little uh, interesting as a high school student and a teacher. Um, nothing weird happened, I promise. But um, over 10 years now, I would consider you my best friend. Um, you're the reason I have a crippling board game addiction in a room that is always with the door closed. Um, Mariah probably doesn't thank you for that. But thank you for pouring in wisdom into our marriage before we even started. The words that you guys imposed on us are some of the same things we still say um, today. To Eric Braun, Rocky and Lori Gray, and Byron Milligan, the people that influenced me in my first internship, um, gave me the chance to be an intern for you students and drive a van um, full of kids. Um, probably was not the smartest decision, but here we are. Um, to thank you, I know you guys are watching online at some point, but I would not be who I am today without you being there um, for me. And so honestly, the one I'm kind of the most excited to see today, Matt Davis. Matt, can you stand up? I hate to do this to you. This man right here is my middle school youth pastor that was the first person that ever made me feel loved and accepted within the church. And he is the man, along with Angie and Brennan T, who I can never say your name in middle school and I still can't do it. Those three individuals have had one of the biggest impacts um, in my life. And it's, I haven't seen Matt in 15 years, but he looks exactly the same and probably still runs the exact same amount that you did now. Um, to my three dear professors, Dr. T, Dr. Million, and Dr. Matos, three people that imposed great wisdom in me, um, one day in class, I walked into my children's ministry class and literally told my children's ministry professor that I don't understand the point in children's ministry. And she very quickly uh, corrected me and grew me um, in more ways than possible. To Stacey and Kylie Huff, who are not here, I don't think, but you guys were best friends for Mariah and took care of her in a season when um, I could not. To Tim Harkins, Bruce and Jamie Maxwell, um, three people that were foundations in a time of change and hardship um, I would not be here today without them guiding and shepherding me. To Scott Dixon, an internship director that I had, that was the first one to kind of reel me back into church when um, I didn't really want to be in. Um, to my battle buddies, Merrick and Lopez, the heathen sitting in the back row that I love dearly. I'm upset the Packers lost last night, the 49ers won. Um, but two of my dear friends that without them in Lithuania, I, I would have struggled a lot more. And they've challenged me in more ways than I can ever imagine. To First Sergeant Welton, also sitting back there, a man that has asked me some of the awkward and hardest questions about my faith, but grew me more and more each and every single day. And the Staff Sergeant Hepker is watching, I believe, all the way from New York, a man that I could rely on in my faith in Archu in Lithuania, freezing our butts off, um, but being new dads and being able to talk and work through that. Captain Stanley, or Bob, feels weird to say that, the man that allowed me to teach when he was gone, that we enjoyed Harry Bacon um, and the great Lithuanian defect together, um, a man that 
spurred me on and pushed me in a season that was very hard. And last but not least, to Randy, Laura, Gary, and Lillian, four people that decided it'd be fun to drive all the way from Pueblo, Colorado, through West Texas to humor Randy, to get pulled over and to run out of gas. They're still here this morning. And to everyone else at Pueblo that'll be watching online, even you, Tim, I'm thankful for the opportunity you've given me. And last but not least, my beautiful wife, who's four inches taller than me, but still decided to wear high heels this morning so she can tower over me even more. I would not be the man I am today. And then obviously my son, but he won't know any of this. But, and if I forget to mention you, for all the friends and family and the church members that have been here, know that I thank you from the bottoms of my heart that I would not be here today without each and every single one of your impacts. So if I've ever crossed shoulders with you, I've ever talked with you, know that I'm thankful for the, the relationship we have. But I'll get started. My brief sermon, um, Rich told me I've got about an hour, so hopefully with all things willing, we'll get right underneath that. But we will be in John chapter four, verses seven through 10. While you're turning there, um, like I said, my dad is sitting right here. Um, and if you've ever had the displeasure of knowing me, you can probably figure out two things quite quickly. I'm sarcastic, and uh, I like to tell a tale, tall tale or make something up. And I get that none other than my dad. Um, growing up, dad decided to tell a couple different stories about how the world really worked. Like the printer works by having monkeys in there and you put fresh crayons in for the printer to work. Um, or that he has a pair of glow-in-the-dark shoes that are invisible during the day, and when my sister accidentally tripped over him one time, she spent two weeks at night trying to find the -the glow-in-the-dark shoes. Or once again, unfortunately for my sister, dad explained how matches, light bulbs, and TVs work. That it's not that they produce light, and that when you light a match or turn a light bulb on, it produces light. It's that they actually absorb darkness, And that's evidenced by when they burn out, you're left with a black match or a burnt-out bulb or a black TV. Pretty convincing enough for a small child to go to her elementary school and decide to give a presentation in front of all of her students that matches don't emit light, they absorb darkness. My dad got a very pointed phone call from the teacher the next day saying, you probably should stop because she definitely believes you. (laughs) But unfortunately, how true of that is today in the church? that we have decided to not follow the words of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, I believe that in today's age, we have fallen prey to the idea that the black match is what we want to produce. That instead of being the light of the world, we simply sit here and soak up and absorb our own sin, or we sit on a hill of self-righteousness and look out in the sinful world and say, I have my lit match, but look at all you sinners that have chosen not to follow the right thing. According to a Pew Research study back in 2018, over 61% of U.S. confessing adult Christians believed in New Age beliefs, such as psychics, reincarnation, astrology, or perhaps the black match that you like to hide behind is the fact of over 2.5 million people visit the world's top pornographic sites every 60 seconds. Or in a 2012 news article stated that the subgenre of erotic books average well over a billion dollars in U.S. sales every year. Or maybe you think just like another study that says 78% of those surveyed believe that religion is losing influence in America. But instead we're focusing on children's sports, we're focusing on video games, we're focusing on the car in our parking lot, 
we're focusing more on board games. I fall prey to that one every so time and often. Or maybe lastly, we see a movement to the deification of the political parties. But the numbers show that both sides of the political aisle have less than stellar numbers. With 63% of Democrats and 51% of Republicans stating that they seldom do or never attend a Bible study or prayer regularly. The bottom line is that loads of us here today have turned a blind eye to the outside world at least once and have rejected the calling of being the light in the world. That at some times, in some places, we have chosen to be the black match. And my question is, is how do we go back, church? How do we go back to the words of Jesus and being the light and the beacon on top of a hill? And I think we can begin to answer that question in John 4, 7 through 10. Now, a little backstory. Jesus has started his earthly ministry. He's going out. He's teaching. And the Pharisees saw Jesus already as a threat and were trying to incite conflict between Jesus and John the Baptist. And because of this, Jesus couldn't take normal routes and he had to go up to Galilee. And typically in those days, a Jewish person had three routes that they could took, take, could take and take, could take. They could have gone along the coast, which would have been a relatively direct route, pretty safe, um, was very common. Or they could have taken the long route, which was cutting across Jordan through Perea and then heading all the way up to Galilee because it was the northern region. Because the reason was the most direct route was cutting directly through a region known as Samaria. And if you were a Jew in those days, you would have rather been killed than go through Samaria. Reason being is that area had been conquered by the Assyrians years before. And the Assyrians and the Jews there had intermingled, had intermarried, and had had kids. And the Jews, the pure breeds, had witnessed and believed that the Samaritans were half-breeds, heathens, that were not worthy of their time. And they were rejected from even worshiping in the temple, even though Samaritans claimed the Jewish faith. So that's where Jesus is at. He's heading to Galilee. He's going through Samaria. And we can pick up our story at John 4, 7 through 10. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking for me to drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who, is, who it is I who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. Now, That set of verses continues to go on and Jesus and the Samaritan woman have a banter back and forth and she keeps missing the mark on who Jesus is and eventually she sees the light of who Jesus is and Jesus calls her out her sin for having five husbands and all this stuff and she goes to the town and witnesses the, you know, shares the gospel and the town comes out and it's a great, fantastic story. But I want to focus in on those three verses, four verses and see how Jesus sees this Samaritan woman and he sees her as his lost child. Not someone too far gone, not someone not worthy of his time, someone that he divinely had to interact with on that day. And he loves this woman in a way that a lot of us in this room, myself included, have not done in a long time. See, we focus on the dark, absorbing match, we focus in on the sin of the world, or perhaps we focus in on what sins a person is committing without looking deeper and seeing the lost child of Christ underneath. Someone who is in need of having the right match lit in front of them. And so Jesus looks past three different things in this woman and looks to the core of the issue. The first is he looks past her gender. Back in those day and age, um, a Jewish male would have never talked to a woman. It was even taught that Jewish men wouldn't spend a lot of time with their wives because it was seen as a waste of time and the woman would just talk their ear off. 
So Jesus talking directly to a woman startled her. But how relevant is this today in our culture? That the issue of gender or the conversation of gender has become a forefront in everyone's mind. We've all seen it. We have a month that celebrates some part of it every single month. And sometimes we can be quick to jump the gun and judge the world. And I'm not saying that we are a church or a believer that should allow sin to be prevalent. We shouldn't teach against it. But the message for today is, are you looking past the sin to get to the root of the issue? Looking past the sin to see the heart of a person that is hurting? Because as a society, we've seen the shift in self-expression of gender. And what do we do when we see them? Do we shun them to the side, not worthy of our time, not worthy of the gospel? Or do we look past the sin issue and go to the root and understand that they are a lost sinner that is suffering something more than we probably can even imagine? In verse 9, he crosses the bridge of religion. See, a Samaritan and a Jew would have been polar opposites when it came to religion. Jews would have seen the Samaritans as heretics, as half-breeds. They weren't even allowed to come to the temple to worship. They had to set up their own temple on Mount Gerzim. But Jesus was not afraid as a rabbi to talk to a woman of a different faith. And how often are we to gatekeep our doors? That when we start conversations with friends, family, or coworkers, we hang up on secondary issues before we can even get to the gospel. We're fighting with our brother and sisters in Christ on Facebook because they don't believe in the mode of baptism that we believe. And the only ones that are winning is the devil because everyone that's watching it sees Christians fighting and they go, what's the point? They can't even be loving to one another. Are you willing to have a conversation with someone that doesn't have 100% your exact beliefs? And lastly, he bridges the gap of culture for her. That a woman in that day and age would not have walked out to a well in the middle of the day when it was the hottest out, when she was at threat of heat exposure, of wild animals, of bandits, but even her own people had rejected her. And we live in a phenomenal country. We have a phenomenal army that is one of the greatest melting pots and mixes of people that we've ever seen. The day in day work that I work with in the army is some of the people that I have never interacted with that have come far and wide around the world. And you work in the same way in the world, but do our churches look the same way? Are we welcoming to those that don't necessarily look like us, talk like us, have the same political views that we have? Maybe even the same way that they raise children, that when you talk to someone, they go, oh, so-and-so is going to talk about this. And if I go talk to them, it's not worth my time. Are you putting things that have no meaning on the front end and not the back end? But Jesus, in verse 10, gives us his response and what we can do. He claims that he's the living water, that she's someone not too far gone, not too different, not too far outside of his love to come back in. And he does the same thing when he calls his disciples. That Jesus called the 12 of 12 very different men. Within the two I can think of is one he calls the tax collector, a person that the Jews would have seen as an enemy, someone that was co-conspiracing with the Romans. And then he also calls a zealot. Which if you don't know what the zealots were, they were a Jewish group of radicals that were trying to kill and destroy the Roman Empire and see the overthrowing of it. And Jesus called both of them to be some of his closest followers and teachers. Two that would go on to carry the gospel through all the nations. Or we can look at Judas. Jesus called the very man that would one day portray him on the cross for pieces of silver, but still called him to do ministry with. Yet, 
When someone cuts us off in traffic, we won't even give them the time of day. And so, as I'm closing up, I'll leave you with one challenge. One for the believers of the room and one for the non-believers of the room. First, to my believing family, do you see those not claiming Christ as his lost children? As the famous author of Crime and Punishment once wrote, to love someone means to see them as God intended them. Not as their sin, not as their shortcomings, not as their problems, but as God intended them to be. And who in your life have you deemed too far gone? Who have you looked at in society and said that they're too far gone, they're not worthy of my time, they're not worthy of the gospel? Perhaps it's someone that has a struggle with their gender or their sexuality. Perhaps it's someone on the opposite side of the political alignment for you. Or perhaps it's someone even in your own home and family, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, whoever it may be. And if you ever catch yourself deeming someone unworthy of the gospel, remember this, that Christ himself humbled himself to the point of a cross and died for all, not just for those that you agree with with your preferences. And to my non-believing friends and family that are here, thank you. You've made the step in the right direction. And for someone that has fallen prey to the hypocrisy and the judgment of the church time and time again, know that that's not the love of Christ. That's the sin of man showing its ugly head. And Jesus can speak for himself, and he does here in John 3, chapter 14 through 16. These are the words of Jesus. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone, not Republicans, not Democrats, not those struggling with their gender, not those of one race or another, not the people that are in only Memorial Baptist Church, but so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. So for the non-believers, I wanna say this, you're not too far gone. You're not too stuck in your sin that Jesus can't come down and save you and pull you out of the muck and mire and bring you into the great family that he is. So as you walk out of here today, which match will you choose? Will you choose to be the light of the world or will you choose to be the dark blackened match that all it ever does is produce darkness and honestly share people away from the faith. This is the last thing I'm gonna read, then Ridge is gonna come up and I won't, I won't bother you anymore. But I would be remiss, and it's perfect that you walked in right at this time, that I read from tradition one of the early church fathers of our faith, a man named Polycarp, who would have most likely scholars believe was John's disciple, so this is the first man that probably would never, did not meet Jesus, but got direct relation to them. And Polycarp is writing to the churches in the area, and this is the encouragement he writes to the church in Philippi during the height of Roman persecution. This is in his letter to the church in Philippi. This is in chapter six, verse two. Therefore, if we ask the Lord to forgive us, then we ourselves ought to forgive. For we're in full view of the eye of the Lord and God, and we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one must account of his own actions. So then let us serve him with fear and reverence, just as he himself has commanded, as did the apostles who preached the gospel to us and the prophets who announced it in advance in coming of our Lord. Let us be eager with regard to do what is good and let us avoid those who tempt others to sin and false brothers, those who bear the name of the Lord hypocritically, who lead foolish people astray. So church, what match will you choose on your way out today? Thank you. Good word. Good word.
Thank you, Jacob. You know, while this charge is a charge to Jacob, I want it also to be an encouragement to everyone that's here. And I say that because each one of us are ministers. Every one of us that is a believer in Jesus Christ is called to minister to the Lord and to one another. And so we're all ministers, and so keep that in mind as we go through this. You know, a young farmer, he was standing in the field, and he, he saw a particular cloud formation, and, and he saw the letters GPC, and, and he just felt like, man, that, that's God calling me to preach. Go preach Christ. And so he goes to his church, and, and, and he insists that God has called him to preach, and respectfully, the leadership there, they said, okay, um, well, um, why don't you fill the pulpit, and we'll uh, see. And so the following Sunday, the sermon was long, it was tedious, it was really kind of virtually un- non-understandable, okay? And, and when it finally ended, the leaders were sitting there kind of in a stunned you know, silence. Uh, finally, the, a wise deacon mutters to the would-be preacher. He said, seems to me that the clouds said, go plant corn. Listen, you can't call yourself into the ministry. God is the one who calls you into the ministry. And good churches make good pastors. And, and I, I think this is so important because this ordination council that met yesterday, we met to examine Jacob's beliefs so that we would know with our, with our stamp of approval on him what he's going to preach and what he's going to put out there. And, and I really feel like, you know, it, it's important because the content of belief, of your belief and mine, is very important. You know, Jonathan Whitfield, he was preaching to some coal miners and, and he asked one man, he said, what do you believe? And the man said, well, I believe the same as the church. And he said, well, let me ask you another question. What does the church believe? And he says, well, the church believes the same as I do. And realizing he's not getting anywhere with them, he said, well, so what is it that you both believe? And the fellow said, well, I, I suppose the same thing. We need to know what we believe. We need to stand on that. You know, Paul charges Timothy to do several things as a faithful minister in 2 Timothy 4. And if you have your scripture and want to open up to that, 2 Timothy 4, uh, verses 1 through 5. And, um, you know, I, I, I do believe this is a charge to Jacob, but every one of us as a minister uh, can, can gain from this. So Paul spoke these words to Timothy um, as his death was imminently approaching. He's, he's, he knows his time here on earth is about done. And so he's wanting to pour one last word into the one that he's been mentoring and discipling. And this is what he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, 
they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul's first charge here in verse 2 was to preach the word, the word of God. To preach the word. And this is mine to you. Always, always, always preach God's word. You know, the Greek term here means literally exactly that. Preach the word. Don't just give a talk. Take God's word and thoroughly proclaim his message. Never depend on your own strength or understanding but allow the Holy Spirit to speak the word through you. He also says there to be ready. To be ready. And we have to understand what being ready means. Being ready, Paul states, you know, be ready in season and out of season. And to be ready means to stand by, to be at hand, to come on and, and upon. And so to take a stand on God's word. I mean, whether the truth is received in season or rejected out of season, hold fast to the truth led by the Holy Spirit. Preach the truth at all times, whether it's popular or not. And preach the word, not just about the word, but preach the word. Next, Paul charges Timothy. To reprove and rebuke. Hmm. Preach the word with conviction. So that it will convict. So that it will do what it's sent to accomplish. And then it says rebuke. <laughs> Step on a few toes if you have to. When it's necessary. But don't fail to let God's word bring conviction of sin. And don't fail to tell exactly what sin is. Notice also that Paul charges Timothy to exhort with great patience or to encourage with great patience and instruction. And so after the reproving, after the rebuking, call them near to comfort them with great patience and utilizing the word of God. Jacob, I just want to say Use loving patience as you minister to God's people. Treat them and teach them God's word from your experience. Never let the turning away from truth by people affect your teaching of that truth. You know, Paul says there in verse 3, he says that sometimes they will no longer endure sound doctrine. They will turn away from it. But we, we must stay the course. We must all keep the faith and preach the truth, never turning to myths or even pop psychology. But you must, as Paul says in verse 5, stay alert, be sober, watching for the enemy and his attacks. For the enemy will attack you. He will attack your family. He will attack your church. 
He will attack any ministry that is faithful to the work and word of God. And Paul writes this for a very good reason. He says, endure hardship. Endure hardship. See, you have to, you have to go through this suffering. The, you have to endure the affliction. Learning to roll with the punches and allowing God to have the victory. There will be hardships. There will be hardships on you. There will be hardships on your wife. There will be hardships on your family. And really, all things are subject to coming under attack. But you have to persevere. You have to stay with it, keep at it, keep on serving the Lord. You know, most of the time, the person who is successful is the one who doesn't give up. Paul then charges Timothy in verse 5, and he says, do the work of an evangelist. And the work of an evangelist means to keep on proclaiming the good news. It's not just the good news, it's the best news ever. So keep preaching the gospel through thick and thin, through the good times, through the bad times, through the times when you don't feel like preaching the gospel, you still preach the gospel. Through personal tragedy, through times of celebration, keep preaching the gospel. And proclaim God's word wherever you are. Don't let discouragement have a foothold and never, ever give up. I mean, tell the enemy, not today, Satan, not happening. We're moving forward in the power of God and his Holy Spirit. See, finally, Paul tells Timothy, he says, fulfill your ministry. Bring your spiritual gift to its full measure, to its full potential. Carry out your service to the fullest. Be all in. Don't be lazy. Don't leave anything on the table. Have no regrets. And with all that you are and with all that the Spirit of God gives you, keep on serving. See, this was Paul's charge to Timothy. And that's my charge to you today. So accept the charge now and carry out the full potential of your ministry. Jacob, I charge you today to demonstrate the gospel with your life. Continue to make Jesus your example. Stay close to him and you will serve well as a minister. Love others with the gospel in your heart. Caring for the bride of Christ, the bride. Share the gospel with those around you. Be an example of boldness in witnessing and bringing others to Jesus. Remember that the church is the flock of the Lord Jesus and he has entrusted it to your care. Minister to, in a way that reflects the truth that one day you will give an account for your ministry. And check on those placed under your care. Pray for them regularly. Know them. Know their hurts, their fears, their needs. And do what is necessary to serve others because you are following Jesus. And lastly, I would say this. If you ever do anything to disqualify yourself from this ministry, or if you lose your burden to serve people, don't make it hard on yourself and don't make it hard on the church. Be a man Step down, do the hard thing.
This is my charge to you today. And serve the Lord with gladness. Giving it your best. May God be glorified in your life and in your home and in his bride, the church. Jacob, God bless you today. It's a high and worthy calling to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ.